Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Trugman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, we have Zavi Danabedian. Zavi is the founder of Stoked Communication, a platform designed to coach entrepreneurs in the art of masterful communication. He is also a NASM certified personal trainer and ADAPT certified holistic health coach, which is Chris Kresser's health coaching institution. He is a Czech integrated movement specialist and an RYT 200 yoga teacher. So as you can hear from his bio, he is a jack of many trades. He is a wealth of knowledge in all things well-being, emotional, spiritual, physical, mental. And I explore all of that in this episode today with Zavi. We go into what does it take to be a masterful communicator? How do you cope with the fear of communicating and allow yourself to step into your full power? How does your childhood inform the way that you communicate with other people? How do you communicate effectively in relationships? So we really dive deep into that. We even demo a little bit of coaching on each other. And towards the end of the episode, we talk about how he nourishes his body nutritionally to perform at his best and optimize his health. So I really enjoy this conversation. Zavi is such an impressive young man. He's only, I think, 26 years old. And to do all that he's done in the world already is magnificent. Please enjoy this conversation with Zavi Donobedian. Zavi D, welcome to the show, my friend. My guy, thank you so much for having me. Really, really stoked to be here. Well, I was saying before I hit record, I've been really looking forward to having you on. You're a wealth of knowledge in, in so many different areas, and you're such a young guy. And it had me thinking, what was Zavi like as a little kid? He's already got so much going on. What, what were you like as a little kid? Yeah, I was really energetic and really celebratory. I was super active, uh, loved to dance, loved to sing, uh, super expressive. And yeah, that, that was a, a really formative component of who I was as a kid was the ability to express. And then as I went through my, my journey a bit, I, that started to kind of fade into the background. And I think what I'm doing now in terms of my own growth and development is kind of a reclaiming process of that expression and excitement and but there are parts that are still here, just rambunctious, crazy, uh, ungrounded at times, and just uh, ready, ready to live at maximum stoke if possible. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that there was kind of this pause, regression, whatever you want to call it, where it, it went away, it faded to the background for a little bit. What do you think contributed to that? The primary event was my parents' divorce, this feeling of separation from family a lack of safety and protection manifest as hypervigilance. I've always been really emotionally intelligent. And as I progressed through the reconciliation phase of living with a single father, uh, it came more and more to being that my hypersensitivity to the world around me caused me to shut down and shrink, which I think many people can resonate with and a lot of people struggle with. I just happened to be really aware of it, which made it even more intense. So I would say that the shrinking really came from feeling unsafe and, and um, the process of reclaiming that safety has been a focal point of the growth and uh, the work that I've been doing over the last five or six years in particular. Well, that really resonates with me too. The kind of noticing, being really self-aware about it and that kind of like amplifying the amount that you're feeling. And then that can be so overwhelming that it causes us to just retreat even more. What do you think then allowed you to come back home to home base? And now you're back to being rambunctious and helping people and doing doing the dance of life so well? This is a great question. And it's a question I don't know if I fully have an answer for yet. 
I believe in divine timing and I believe in hard work. And I think it was a combination of those two. When I started this, it was really time. I was experiencing a crisis in my health and I realized that something needed to change. And I also took the time over the last five or six years, that time period I mentioned, to put in the work, to sit in the darkness, the pain, the frustration, the anger, the anxiety, uh, and befriend it. And so I can't say I'm whole and solid in any of those things necessarily all the time, but I can say that the work has paid off. Let's dive into it. Let's uh, talk about your work. What, what do you do? So for the last four years, I've owned Organic Health Movement, which is a health coaching platform with the mission to coach aspiring self-masters and the physical, mental, and emotional tenets of embodied well-being. I've had a lot of clients. I've had many different walks of life walk through my doors. And at this very juncture in my professional career, I'm truly being drawn to a different skill set, and that's communication. And right now, as I'm refining that process, the vision statement I'm going with is uh, I'm coaching entrepreneurs and businesses in masterful communication. Masterful communication meaning both heart-centered speech, organization, and primarily the ability to deliver clear and concise messaging, which I think is absent from most professional endeavors and most definitely relationships. So that is manifest as the ethos right now, however shaky that may be, but it's coming together nicely for sure. I, I doubt that you know this about me, but a few years ago, I was asked to give a presentation at work that was, it was extremely overwhelming at the time. I was being asked to lead a training that would have been in front of, I think it was 60 people. It was being broadcast from New York, which was my office, into Philadelphia and Boston. And I found out it had to have been like five months in advance of the presentation that I'd be doing. And I went into a complete panic. I I felt completely unprepared to do it. I thought if I stood in front of a room that day, that I would freeze up and not be able to speak at all. And that led me on a journey of investing in my public speaking ability. And I've invested thousands of dollars probably into my public speaking. And I think my audience will resonate with the fear of public speaking and kind of overcoming whether it's shyness or performance anxiety. And so I'm really excited to kind of dive in with you about what makes an effective communicator. For someone who's run of the mill, uh, they're doing, you know, the corporate type of job, or it, it maybe even an entrepreneur and is feeling real performance anxiety about the next presentation they're going to make, where do you typically start with them? The starting place is your emotional body or the subset of beliefs that underlie your inability to properly deliver a presentation, to show up in a conversation, to create connection with others. I often find that the limiting beliefs around one's ability, one's skill set, and one's past are the anchors preventing one from truly setting sail. And in addressing those unresolved aspects of self and those unresolved tethers to the past uh, through emotional integration work, uh, through positive mindset, through uh, breath work at times, and oftentimes just pure stillness, there's the opportunity to create space to step into a more renewed and focused perspective that allows you to deliver, for example, in your case, that presentation with grace, uh, with mastery, and with command, which are some of those components that are often missing from somebody who's a novice uh, in public speaking or somebody who is quite new to the realm of sharing their heart openly with a, a bigger audience or a big stage. Would you be open to trying this out on me? Sure. I would love it. Let's do it. I'm going to dial back a little. It's still a limiting belief probably that I have. I've just gotten better at coping with it and even being com really compassionate towards it and trying to listen to it. But mm. one of the limiting beliefs that I had as a speaker was that I wasn't interesting. And that could, mm. there were many different variations of that, but I felt like I was boring. I'm not interesting. Where, where would we, so let's, uh, let's go to town on, on that belief. 
well, the first question I would ask is what makes an interesting speaker in your mind? Mm. Dynamic, making lots of eye contact, good storyteller. That was a belief of mine, by the way, too. I, I'm a terrible storyteller. And if you peeled back on that, it was because I had nothing interesting to share. But I would also say relatable, able to work the room. That's what I would say is someone who's like a really interesting speaker. Yeah, so I heard you say, if I'm correct, dynamic, lots of eye contact, has something interesting to say, works the room. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, cool. So the next question I'm going to ask you is, uh, if you took the audience away, what if I suggested to you, you'd still feel the same way about your presentation if you're presenting to uh, no one in particular? Like, what's my response to that? Yeah. That, so just ponder it, maybe consider it. What would it be like if uh, you got up there, delivered the presentation in an empty room? How would you feel about it? Yeah. The anxiety, surprisingly, it would still, it would still be there, but it would be greatly diminished. It would be at a much more operable level. Sure. A hundred percent. And what if I suggested that when you get up in front of people, it's like taking a magnifying glass to that insecurity and anxiety and all of a sudden it becomes this overwhelming feeling of, of restrictive inability to communicate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely resonates for sure. Let's just choose one word that describes this block that's going on for you right now. Maybe it be in the past or in this very present moment. One word that stands out to you. Fear. Yeah, awesome. Uh, what was the earliest age at which you remember being terrified? I want to say it was, I actually just spoke about this recently in, in one of my posts, but it was maybe sixth or seventh grade. I was, let me backtrack on that actually. Fifth grade, I, I sang Little Bunny Foo Foo in front of the entire school. And it, it actually went well, but I just remember like how nauseous I felt the entire time leading up to that. And that it was, it, for some reason, even though it went well, it felt really embarrassing. It was just like something I didn't want to do again. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so probably some sense of peer pressure, anxiety, nausea, some experiences of intense emotion, even though it went well. Yeah, yes. Uh, cool. So Mike, I experienced you to be a pretty developed person. So maybe not with every client I would jump to this, but with you, I will. What if I suggested to you that in public speaking, you are healing feelings of anxiety and insecurity that have nothing to do with the moment you're in? Mm. Well, after having been in classes for the past three some odd years, I know that to be absolutely true. It's a cathartic healing experience. For sure. Um, for example, after that presentation you gave, how did you feel knowing that it for all intents and purposes, went pretty well. Elated, man. I, I wanted to, <laughs> I like skipped out of the office that day and I felt so good. It made me want to continue. Yeah, I, I kind of signed up for the public speaking classes just thinking I need to get to this point. And once I, once I experienced the success of it, I wanted more. And that's kind of actually been emblematic of a lot of my journey in general with nutrition and personal development and fitness is once I got a taste of success, I just, I want more, I want more. Yeah, beautiful, I love it. Uh, for sure resonant for me too. And let's tie some of those pieces that you mentioned to begin with back to this realization that you're healing emotions that are uncomfortable in the process of public speaking. What if I suggested to you that the way you become interesting is to feel boring and tasteless? Mm, I like that. Said in another way, what if the most interesting thing about you is that you're boring? <laughs> I'm just breathing with that one. That felt really comforting to hear. Uh, yeah, I felt some comfort in my heart knowing that a part of me is deathly afraid of being boring too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, what I'm doing here for everybody who's listening is I'm taking Mike back into these past emotions that came up and fifth and sixth grade singing little bunny foo-foo. I'm helping him create first a new perspective around the emotions that he felt. So he feels more comfortable feeling them and addressing them. And then I am validating the emotions 
so that as he moves forward now, he has a greater sense of camaraderie and connection to the parts of himself he may have purposely disconnected from, which therefore manifests as future public speaking anxiety. Thank you very much for that. I, I wasn't expecting our conversation to go there, but it seemed like it was a beautiful demo for the audience and it certainly was very helpful for me. So I, I really appreciate that. Absolutely, man. Next, Absolutely. next place I kind of want to take you is I think most, most of your audience is at a more graduated level of communication than that. And so if, if someone's a pretty effective communicator and they're coming to you and they're like, I just want to take it to the next level. I want to be TED talk level at some point, where, where would you go from there? In order to effectively communicate in a masterful fashion, we first must establish that emotional peace. Like you said, there are many in my circle that have a fairly grounded perspective and approach to their emotions. So the next step is to get into the nitty gritty of communication. For example, I'm developing a course right now. It's called No Duh, which is the art of simple and concise messaging. One of the components in that that I'll be teaching is the balance between pause and emphasis. And this shows up in tonality. This shows up uh, in voice. For example, if I speak up here in my throat, not many people will register that as powerful. But if I speak down here from my belly, I'll create greater resonance with my audience. Likewise, if I speak really fast and I try to get to the point, people are going to be overstimulated. Whereas if I pause and give space for my words to land, I'll emphasize the points I want to drive home. And by working with some of that communication style saying, you know, give me your most recent pitch or describe to me the last conversation you had that didn't go well and having them recount that, we can break it down. When you spoke to your wife and you emphasized how shitty she's been to you, how did that sound? Ah, well, I was really high pitched the whole time, really aggressive, and I didn't create space for there to be emphasis, right? So that, that dance of pause and emphasis is one of the things that comes to mind, for sure. Relationships, another area that of the many, like I said at the top of this, that you're pretty well versed in. Communication is certainly a very, very important part of relationships. And I would say that listening to the other person is one of the core tenets of a strong relationship. How would you say you kind of teach people how to balance both of those things? Being a good listener, let's just start with that actually. Like how would you teach someone to be a good listener? Oftentimes being a poor listener is the function of feeling undervalued. This causes us to jump in at improper junctures in a conversation, cut people off, not fully receive what they have to say. The fear of being overlooked or undervalued once integrated creates a better listener. Once they're at that stage, I would offer listening is a function of breath. You are the best listener when you are breathing in a rhythmic diaphragmatic fashion. And oftentimes we hold our breath because we're afraid of what's going to come out of the other person's mouth, especially in an intense conversation. So that's one of the tricks that I employ when I feel there's tension, I begin to breathe to calm my nervous system down so I can receive what the other person is saying rather than react to it. And then on the flip side, once, once you've established the rapport as a good listener, or at least a half decent one, what do you think makes an effective communicator in, in a relationship context? Yeah, an effective communicator is one who is astoundingly obvious with what they have to say. There is no ambiguity. For example, with my girlfriend, Lissa, if I'm making a plan, I will run the plan by her. If there is a change to the plan, I will reiterate the plan with a new idea. Hey, I think we should go buy some steaks tonight. No, I don't really want steaks. I want chicken. 
okay, I am going to buy chicken at the market now. How much do you want? Versus, okay, fine. And then you go to the market and there's a, a bit of tension. There's some residue of that conversation. It doesn't land as well as, as if I state the obvious, right? Okay, now I'm going to buy chicken. It sounds sarcastic, but it's actually incredibly useful for helping the other person to be on the same page with you because miscommunication is the inability to create effective understanding and clarity between two parties. So stating the obvious, however ridiculous it sounds is super helpful with that. And it's so true in coaching in general too, not just in a relationship context or even a communication context as coaches, asking really simple questions helps us get to the bottom of a lot of things. It helps us get clear on what the other person, where the other person is coming from. We don't know where anyone else is coming from without being astoundingly clear about it. And like you said, it, it seems so obvious, but it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking we, we know it all. This is kind of leading me towards coaching in general. I know that you've invested a lot in yourself, a lot in your coaching. You're an excellent coach already, but what do you think makes someone a really effective coach? The topic we just covered is a great representation of that. I've heard it from my mentor. To be a good coach is to listen twice as much as you speak. Mm -hmm. We are in the business of helping people help themselves. We are not in the business of forcing our ideas down other people's throats. Just that alone can make somebody a better coach today. <laughs> I think if we just understood that, we'd make tremendous progress in giving people the space to reclaim their own sovereignty. And that would make for better clients too. But before I go further, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I know you're an excellent coach as well. I think what makes an excellent coach, an excellent entrepreneur, or just someone who excels in any domain of their life is mostly curiosity, a desire in earnest to improve and understand compassion, kindness, and this kind of seekingness, like the very much like that's like another level of curiosity to me is constantly searching for something deeper, which in a lot of ways, it, it has the, the flip side of that can be, you know, you're, you're not enjoying anything, and you're constantly questioning everything. And I think a lot of coaches struggle with that. But what makes an excellent coach in the simplest form are probably those qualities in, in my humble opinion. Yeah, really well said. What I love that you said is curiosity. It's something that I work with often. I have a short attention span and to remain curious is a challenge for me, especially with coaching. Some clients I've had come back to me with the same problem week after week. To remain curious about that is a serious challenge. Mm -hmm. But if one can find a genuine desire to serve uh, and like you said, this seekingness, this seeking of delivering value in the highest esteem, that process can become ever exciting. And as a result of that, curiosity naturally arises and is not forced. Yeah, I, I was saying to my coach yesterday, I, I had a session with my coach and we were talking about the same kind of thing. What actually makes a great coach? And I use the analogy of basically being a four or five-year-old who assumes they know nothing, but also has this like natural wisdom about them. Like at their soul, they understand a lot of things, but at the same time, everything is novel and uh, they look at the world with wonder and cultivating that as a coach, but even I think in any endeavor allows you to really see that's another quality of a good coach like to really see someone and listen to them and hear them man like how many of how many people are actually fully seen for who they are and just accepted for that so there's nothing more beautiful than that yeah really well said and I, uh, correct me if i'm wrong but i think a lot of people just come to be seen in the first place that's why mm -hmm. they seek out assistance and not many people 
are truly seen for who they are. My mentor Jator says it really well. Oftentimes, uh, our most intimate partners in life know us the least. Mm. Um, and, and that's a, a bitter pill to swallow for some, but very true. And one of the reasons why coaching can be so powerful is you create a connection with somebody who knows all aspects of you. Why do you think that is? Like, why is it so hard for us to be ourselves and not the armored up mask on version of ourselves? It, it's really challenging. Even someone like me who's really committed to that, it's, it's challenging. Most definitely. Tribal association dictates our desire to be welcomed in a group. Any threat to that is a threat to the survival of the group. And primarily, we are designed to perpetuate our survival as a tribe and as an individual. So oftentimes, representing for how you truly feel or where you are truly at creates tension, strife, and conflict, which from a primal perspective is to be avoided at all costs. Uh, so I think oftentimes we're trying to overcome something that cannot be overcome. Rather, it's a game of management and self-regulation where we start to become more comfortable in the right scenarios and at the right time to share that. Yeah, I don't think enough people really understand that at one point it was necessary for our survival to blend in. And the concept of true individualism is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a more modern construct. Like we we didn't have that luxury not that many ancestors ago because we would have died if we tried to be individual. And now that we have so many comforts in our life and our safety is not really being challenged that much, although the news would say otherwise, we are kind of stuck with this. Like what's, how do I actualize? Like that's where a lot of people I think are at. And that's where a lot of coaches can come in and can help people with that. So the, the next thing I wanted to ask you was, what do you think are some good questions, some staple questions that you ask people to stay curious and stay grounded? Because I think this, is, this doesn't just apply to coaches. It can apply to anyone who's in a relationship or who has friendships and wants to just more effectively understand people. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. No pun intended. <laughs> the first question I would ask at any new coaching client would primarily be, what is your most painful memory? Oftentimes, that's where the good stuff is. Mm. And when it comes to all these techniques of communication, it remains true to this day that if there's unresolved emotion anywhere in your past or anywhere in your present moment, it will create tension and strife in your ability to communicate. So first and foremost, what is your most painful memory? Secondly, what are your greatest strengths? How can I focus your attention as my client in the areas where you excel so that they can begin to surround the dragon? By surround the dragon, I mean you encompass the fire or the challenge, which with as much good energy as possible to quell or diminish the strength of the dragon's breath, right? Uh, and oftentimes in personal development, we focus so much on the past and so much on the unresolved we forget to embrace the present and our, our co-creative power as, as uh, empowered beings. So uh, those two questions uh, stand out as a really good place to start. I could probably do a year of coaching just based on those two. Do you ever get, I'm sure you do, but when you, when you come in pretty hot and ask, what's your most painful memory? Do you, you ever experience people getting completely blocked up and shutting down? A hundred percent. And I, I'm prepared for that. So uh, I should better say I titrate up to that <laughs> uh, and I work into it um, with questions like I just asked you. Like, what was the, when was the first time you felt insecure? Oftentimes, if I peel back the layers and I start going deeper on that, we start to see a bigger picture of, oh, seems to be here that the most painful memory is indeed losing your cat when you were five or feeling disconnected from your brother uh, when he went off to college, something like that, right? And so oftentimes, I, I guess I'll, I'll try to phrase it with communication techniques in a way that, that lands a bit better. But between you and me, it's always the most painful memory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to kind of play with this one, too, if, if you're open with it. Definitely, I'm down. Yeah. Well, let, let's see. Are you, are you open to be on the receiving end? What's, what's your, your most painful memory? Yeah. 
um, after my parents divorced, there was a, a brief period of time where my dad and I were living in Santa Fe, which is where I was born and raised. Uh, my mom was living in Santa Fe as well, but they lived apart. Uh, they were separated, divorced. And there was one last night where I saw my mom before my dad and I moved to San Francisco. And I remember begging her to let me stay. Uh, and I was being so rude and so mean and so nasty and just basically giving everything that I had to try to get that to happen. And she called my dad to pick me up early. So not only did I have to say goodbye to my mom, but it felt like she didn't want me. And that memory stands out really deeply as my most painful memory for sure. And, and there are other elements to it as well, but that one moment encapsulates the separation and the pain that that represented for sure. What did you make that mean about yourself? That is a core wound of worthlessness and feeling like I don't matter. Uh, so my attempts in the world are constantly oriented towards proving my worth or proving my value, uh, which oftentimes leads to giving my ass away, going above and beyond and trying to get others to see my worth when in fact they already do. What allows you to fill up that cup of worthiness from within? What, where do you ground yourself in worthiness? The first reminder is that the initial separation from my mother at birth was not my fault. I remind myself that very, that infant in a subconscious manner, because he can't understand the words that I say that he is all he will ever need. And that is a constant reminder and, and point of growth in all my relationships. I am all I will ever need. As a coach, I am all that I will ever need. As a lover, I'm all that I will ever need. And it's actually from that wellspring that I can give to those relationships. And don't get me wrong, there's a tendency to go looking for love when I feel worthless, most definitely. That never goes away. But the dance is I do get to experience a heightened sense of worthiness at times because that core wound is the dichotomy there that I'm forever pulling and pushing against. Thank you for sharing that, Zavi. I, I really appreciate that. 100%, man. Thanks for listening. Well, the, the next area that I want to kind of dive in with you, actually, before I go there, what from the conversation we've had so far would be some good books or resources that you'd recommend for people to grab onto? Uh, yeah, there are a few wonderful uh, communication books that I always go to. One is called Five Stars by Cameron Gallo. Um, it's a really interesting book about the role of communication. The one attribute of the workforce that can't be replaced uh, in future generations, the ability to communicate, the ability to convey and emote really cool short read, nothing too crazy. If you're looking for some more effective techniques, nonviolent communication by Oren J. Sofer is a great book. Just a good guidebook for developing some methods of compassion and communication. Nonviolent is a bit of a word where, you know, you're, you're saying violent anyway, so that your subconscious picks up on that. I prefer compassionate, compassionate mm -hmm. communication is a better mm -hmm. moniker of that. And then man, another book, maybe just for some truth that really hits home. Uh, there's a book by a spiritual teacher named Muji called white fire. And it's just uh, bits of his sat songs that are just, just right to the core of your being. And he's known as like the laughing Buddha in that, you know, his, his ultimate realization with people is to make them laugh in their own bullshit and get them to wake up out of it. <laughs> uh, so th those three books are really good. If you, you want a, a good overview of, of communication and you want some really good spiritual material to drive at home. I, I could speak to nonviolent communication, which I've read. And one of the striking things about reading that book was how illiterate we are emotionally. And by we, I also include I. Like if I were to label my different feelings, which is a very important part about communicating in, in relationship especially, I didn't have that many words I'd go to. How are you feeling? Good, great, scared, sad, happy. And I kind of got stuck there. And I actually keep, a, I keep the book with me every day to have a list of different feelings because... I think that's such an important area for growth for 
people in general is to be able to feel our feelings to completion and not shove them down and numb and distract and all the stuff that we typically do. Yeah, it's it's just a really powerful book and I, I'll have to check out the other two. That's awesome. Uh, emotional literacy is, is something I hopefully do a course on in the future, but just so impactful uh, and something that is, if there's anything that I, I feel I've been born with as a natural gift, it's the ability to just on a dime communicate the emotional topography of where I'm at. And I think that's a function of growing up with a super emotional father and a super emotional mother who were extremely communicative and very graceful in it, despite how dysfunctional the emotions could have been. Uh -huh. um, so I, I do think that stands out and, and finding vocabulary is, is really an interesting dance. One that I really uh, applaud you for discovering more of because it creates such greater depth of connection uh, in all relationships. And it's so important. There's a, this Native American saying that the longest journey or the most important journey a man can make is the 14 inches from his head to his heart. And that's been a focal point of my journey the last, I would say year, but even more in particular, the last like three months, I've been really working hard to integrate head, heart, be able to speak directly from the heart. And part of that is being able to label our feelings and to navigate like what is happening in here. Anyway, the next place I wanted to go with you, which I think was maybe one of the main reasons to have you on is you're just breadth of knowledge in all things nutrition. I know that that's a staple of who you are as a coach. And uh, it's a very important aspect of your life. And I would even posit that it's an important aspect of being a strong communicator is nourishing your body with the right stuff. Within your nutrition, I want to know like, what, how do you organize your day? What's a typical Zavi D day of eating look like? And why do you choose those foods? Uh, for sure. So you'll be probably shocked a little bit that it sounds very uh, childlike, uh, my diet, and that the inner fat kid never dies. But I've, I've hacked the ways to incorporate those delicious <laughs> foods. I do one thing really consistently, and that's intermittent fast in the morning. I find it to be extremely beneficial for blood sugar regulation, uh, for mood, for clarity and for workouts. Uh, particularly around fat loss. So I fast until about 10.30, 11.30 or noon every day, just going off of uh, black coffee in the morning. I used to do exogenous ketones back in the day, but uh, they gave me some GI distress. So I stopped taking those. Uh, I'll break the fast with something light. So a smoothie with some protein powder, plant-based, and wait a few hours to, to really eat with my nervous system. I notice I do best with carbs right after a workout. And then probably go in on uh, anywhere from ground beef to chicken to tuna, um, complemented by some veggies and, of course, some sourdough bread, I'm bringing it home. Uh, really, I, I find that my gut at this stage of its development is not super keen for heavy amounts of vegetables. I just don't break them down very well, uh, even though I do incorporate digestive enzymes and such. So I stick to starches and meats. And then as the day goes on, I'll move from uh, lighter meats like fowl or fish to beef and um, red meat. So steak or bison with sweet potato, some sort of starch, maybe like um, uh, cassava or rice, jasmine rice in particular, uh, and greens. And then, um, like I said, I'm a fat kid at heart. So I end every night with some sort of treat. Usually it's ice cream, sometimes it's not. But I think it's just, uh, it's a way to connect back to that part of myself that used those foods for comfort. Uh, and I also find it to be a nice little reward um, at the end of the day for, for being fasted for a while and eating healthy whole foods all the while. Well, th that resonates with me deeply. I want to kind of peel away at a couple of different things that you said. So intermittent fasting, I, I do the same thing. I eat around 1130 my first meal. But honestly, if someone really pressed me and said, why are you intermittent fasting? I don't know that I would be able to eloquently put it into words, but I know that you can. Why do you intermittent fast? Word. Yeah, um, there are a few processes in the body that it, it benefits. First, like I mentioned, is blood sugar regulation. Uh, so by fasting, you reduce blood glucose levels uh, and you increase insulin sensitivity. And insulin is a hormone secreted by your pancreas that helps drive sugar glucose into the cell uh, to be metabolized. 
blood sugar dysregulation is really common in the United States because we're mainlining high fructose corn syrup and ho-hos and uh, big gulps. And by fasting, you increase the body's ability to properly utilize glucose so that your next meal, uh, it's absorbed with greater uh, sensitivity and uh, it causes more stable adaptation in blood sugar such that for long periods of time, you're able to switch into different sources of fuel like ketones to provide the body with fuel, primarily because glucose is uh, an exceptional fuel for some activities and not exceptional for others. So really it's a game of adaptation there. That's, that's the first point. Mm -hmm. Okay, sourdough bread seems like a random one. I know that sourdough can be fermented, but why yeah. sourdough bread? And um, why is fermentation important? Sure. So uh, the main protein in wheat that people are reactive to is called gliadin. And fermentation, particularly of wheat, breaks down gliadin and reduces the glycemic index, which is the blood sugar regulation term, of bread. So for me, I am intolerant to, let's just say, bagels and pasta glutinous items that haven't been fermented because that gliadin protein is still intact. Whereas sourdough bread helps break, break it down and allows my GI tract to produce a smaller inflammatory response and it doesn't spike my blood sugar in the process. And the last part that I wanted to cover was the gut. I want to I want to know about the microbiome. Why is that so important? Why does it get so much press? And like explain it like you would to a, a five-year-old. Sure. The microbiome is simply the amount of bacteria in your gut that confer beneficial, so good, or maladaptive, meaning bad, effects on your whole body. It refers primarily to, uh, we could call it the metabolic or the uh, energy producing activities of this population, or said in another way, the amount of microbes in your gut, which is not just the stomach, it's your whole GI tract, and whether or not those are good or bad, put simply. Mm -hmm. Outside of what we eat, what are some other ways that we can nourish ourselves? Like, sunlight for example sunlight is a great one natural exposure to the sun and uh, to the negative ions that are inherent in uh, barefoot walking and swimming in natural bodies of water uh, physical activity is another one so today i have not nearly gotten enough steps but non-exercise physical activity is hugely important living in new york you probably get more of it than uh, you could possibly need which is good and then I would say uh, another one is sauna. Sauna is a phenomenal tool for everything that I mentioned about blood sugar regulation and is phenomenal for recovery. Throwing that in with uh, kind of tissue health is mobilization and stretching. So, you know, stretching tight muscles and strengthening weak ones to create balance in your neuromuscular system is super important. And those are just four of many that I could probably mention to, to, to bring home the point of optimal health uh, outside of the basics, right? Mm -hmm. All right, Zavi. Well, I, I wanted to cover as much ground as possible in the first 45 minutes on all things communication, nutrition. I think we did a good job. We covered coaching, entrepreneurship a little bit. I did want to, on the back end here, ask you a few rapid fire questions. Let's do this thing. Let's do this thing. I love it. Okay. When you picture success, or successful, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? Uh, my mentor, Michael Bruno. Uh, he's exceptionally elegant, super fucking rich, <laughs> and has a ball and ass time. Awesome. Yeah. If you had to base your life around one belief, your entire life around one belief, what would that belief be? The phrase, it already happened. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a very powerful teaching that I learned from uh, a guy named Matt Kahn that really gets to the heart of anxiety and uh, this need to constantly ponder our success and our future. Uh, it already happened. Whatever's meant to happen has already happened, right? Mm -hmm. You're simply re-experiencing it. 
And so if you can take that receptive nature that you have within you and just receive what already happened, it takes the pressure off of you. And that allows you to actually live a life of authentic joy. Uh, love that. Yeah. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah, dinner. this is the hardest question, which is wild. You see, musicians come to mind, but I, I, I know they're not as cool as they're hyped up to be, in my experience. <laughs> I would probably sit with Jean-Paul Sartre, who's a philosopher, or Plato. Those two guys, I read a lot of Sartre, and uh, this course I took in high school called The Examined Life, and his stuff which hit the right buttons for me. And Plato is just such a depth of knowledge of all things. It'd be, it'd be fun to, to, to really sit with that, that individual and learn. What were maybe like the top one or two things you learned from both of them? Yeah. So Plato represents the structure of the universe extremely well to me. Like the platonic solids, the nature of uh, human communication. And just to learn about how he's conceptualized an order for everything we experience would be really, really powerful. Uh, and Sartre, I would say the nature of an examined life. So the fundamental nature of what he believes to be human nature, uh, mm -hmm. which in my experience of his work is to be good, right? Yeah. Uh, that benevolence or creating a, a positive outcome is is a worthy inquiry within and without i just I, I read a lot of philosophy in that class and a lot of it was stoic and that didn't resonate with me as much as his philosophy did it was more heart-centered so I, i'd really go deep with that mm -hmm. well i think this is a, a good dovetail question off of that yeah. and my podcast is called mike's search for meaning so yeah I'm going to ask every guest as a, a final question. Yeah. What is your definition of a meaningful life? Mm. A life where your heart feels safe in all spaces it explores. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Ah, oh, I love that, man. Yeah. Wouldn't that be, have you ever heard of the seven levels of why exercise? No. You take like, let's just say you took your marketing slogan for your coaching Right. You'd go, why is that important to you? Mm. And then you, you just do that seven times down. I think ultimately we'd probably get down to, we just want our, we want everyone's heart to feel safe in mm. all aspects in any place in the world. Like that's why mm. I coach. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll add, I think you often have to go to some very scary places to challenge yourself to find that safety. And that's when true mastery comes in. Terrifying, terrifying yeah. places. And that's, sure. that's where all the growth happens. But yeah. Zavi, where can people find you online? 100%. Well, uh, stay tuned for the rebrand, everybody. Uh, new Instagram handle, website, etc. is coming. But for now, you can find me at Organic Health Movement on Instagram, Facebook, Zavi Donabedian on LinkedIn, uh, Zavi D over on Clubhouse, those are the primary platforms I've been using. People can go check out my website, organichealthmovement.mykajabi.com. Lots of good information all over the place. So uh, wherever you find yourself on those platforms, feel free to reach out, say, hey, say what up, introduce yourself. Super stoked to chat, super stoked to connect. Awesome, man. Well, I'll link to all of that in the show notes. I'll link to any of the resources that we discussed as well in the show notes. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to add? Man, oh man, um, I think we got to it, man. Uh, like I said, I'll just plug this new course that I'm working on. It's called No Duh, it's the art of simple communication. And I think that stands out in our conversation in that we got to so much in such a short amount of time. Ultimately, as communicators who are seeking self-mastery, that's, that's really the art. Well, that was the first thing that struck me about you, Zavi. The first time that we spoke, I said, my God, for such a young guy, not even for such a young guy, you're just a very impressive communicator. So I'm really glad that you're stepping into that part of your journey and helping people in such an important area of their life. And I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I have mostly admired you from afar, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, man. It's been really, really nice to connect with you. And to go all the way there with you in, in the last hour or so. 
Dude, always a sincere pleasure. Um, I'll have to have you online soon enough, but this has been just absolutely phenomenal. Really, really grateful and so stoked for you with all the moves you're making and humble to bear witness as well. Thank you so much, Avi. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace. Thank you.